You're listening to Ozarks at Large on KUAF 91.3 FM in Fayetteville. I'm Anna Pope. And I'm Daniel Carruth. A happy Memorial Day to you in honor of the holiday. We're taking a break this week and bringing you a collection of archive shows. Today we'll have a selection from Randy Dixon and the Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History from February and a selection of sunshine-inspired music from Leah Aribe and Sound Perimeter. That's coming up in the second half of our program. First, though, we kick it off with a report from April. Less, from a, less than a year from now, millions of people are expected to trek across the U.S. and to the world and, our, and the world to our region to stare at the sky. A total solar eclipse is set to cut across Arkansas in April of 2024, and planning is already underway for the history-making event. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth has more. For the past six years, Shelley Alston in MENA has been preparing for an event that will last approximately four minutes, seven seconds. Here, I believe it's closer to four minutes, eight seconds. And she still has just under a year left to wait. That's because in 2024, a total solar eclipse, when the moon crosses the face of the sun, creating a celestial phenomenon, will make its way diagonally across the United States from Texas to Maine, going directly through southeast Oklahoma and the center of Arkansas. Dave Alford runs the Blue Moon Observatory in Hevener, Oklahoma, which is in the path of totality. He says the eclipse will cast a roughly 80-mile diameter-wide shadow, traveling at 1,700 miles per hour, and will create spectacular occurrences. The birds will go to roost. You'll hear the coyotes will start howling and stuff like that. There'll be um, this thing called shadow bands where you you throw a white sheet out on the ground and you can see ripples in 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 the light going across it, you know, dark and light, dark and light, dark and light. If you get near a, a tree that's got leaves on it and put a sheet out underneath it, you can see thousands of little, little tiny eclipses. The light peeping between the leaves makes uh, little tiny pinhole cameras. And so you get little images, like hundreds and hundreds of images of the sun. And of course, it, uh, it helps us to helps us to refine the, the, the timing uh, and motion of the solar system and the moon. The eclipse is projected to reach our region between 12.30 and 2 p.m. on April 8th. For Arkansas, the path cuts from Texarkana in the west to roughly Jonesboro in the east. Kim Williams with Arkansas Tourism says this is a big deal for the state. Because we do expect that it will be most likely the biggest event that Arkansas has ever seen. Williams says she remembers the last solar eclipse that brushed the United States back in 2017. And I was at my nearest Arkansas State Park, which is Mississippi River State Park, and my supervisor said, hey, go out, get some photos of people wearing the eclipse glasses and You know, and I honestly didn't think much about it. Now, in 2017, and we had great fun at the park, but honestly, I don't know that anyone, including the states within the path of totality in 2017, realized what an event it was going to be. That event was the first time that the continental U.S. had seen a total solar eclipse since 1918. And after the one next year, the country is not due for another until 2024, 
according to projections from NASA. Parts of 53 of our 75 counties in Arkansas are within the path of totality. You know, that's huge. But also, um, the time of pure solar darkness is nearly twice as long. In 2017, the longest period throughout the 12 states was 2 minutes and 45 seconds. In Arkansas, we have locations up to 4 minutes and 18 seconds. And all of that, Williams says, is expected to drive a huge number of people into the state. She says places in the 2017 eclipse path saw nearly triple their population in visitors and a record-breaking economic bump. 1.6 million people showed up in South Carolina in 2017. And the economic impact for one week, and probably not even one week, it was probably more like five days, was $269 million. She says a lot of the communities in places like South Carolina and Wyoming were shocked and unprepared for the influx of eclipse tourists. And while Williams says the numbers from that event are only a guide for 2024, she expects at least 1.5 million eclipse chasers to make their way to the natural state next year. So that means that there are things like there will be an increased... Um, influx of traffic. You know, restaurants will need to plan um, because more people will be in the community. They'll need somewhere to eat. They'll, you know, need things to do. And as of last weekend, one year out from the April 8th event, reservations at state parks across Arkansas were already filling up, according to a spokesperson for Arkansas State Parks Heritage and Tourism. About 25 state parks are expected to be in the path of totality, and Hot Springs National Park is one of only two national parks within the total solar eclipse. And Shelly Alston, who runs the Blue Zipline and Farm outside of Mina in the Washita Forest, says she expects around four to 5,000 visitors just in her region. She says she's already booked spots for people from all over the world. And I've got them coming as uh, like uh, Oregon, Washington, Florida, a lot of people from California, even the U.K., I've got booked. She says over the past six years, she's worked to make her 160 acres more accessible and is putting on a week-long festival for campers ahead of the eclipse. Everything from porta-potties to septic systems, electrical plans for our new showers, um, so all the campers can have, uh, you know, some hot showers while they're here. And uh, vendors, uh, getting everything, you know, prepared on where, where the vendors are going to be. Uh, where are the RV sites going to be? How many can we fit in one area? And then a lot of uh, networking, getting ideas off of, you know, from, from other people, uh, sharing ideas, town hall meetings, just, uh, you know, planning for anything that could happen and uh, everything that you hope will happen. And Williams says it's important for people who may end up hosting these solar eclipse watchers to think well beyond those four or so minutes in order to get the most out of this once-in-a-lifetime event. People came into the eclipse communities in 2017, three, four, five days before the actual eclipse. Statistically, 
they have expendable income, the people that chase the eclipse. They're well-educated. They are going to be very respectful of our communities and our state. They want to learn things while they're in Arkansas. And she expects it won't just extend to communities directly in the path of totality. Two-thirds of our state in this path of totality. You know, you can drive anywhere in Arkansas within three or four hours, regardless of which corner that you're at. So the majority of locations outside the path of totality, you can still drive to that path, that full path of darkness, within an hour, hour and a half, two hours max. And Dave Alford says the most important thing to remember, no matter where you're looking up from next April, is to bring some eye protection. Even a second exposure, looking at the sun with the naked eye, can cause permanent damage to your eyes. I prefer to use the Mylar Eclipse glasses. The only time it's safe to look at directly without the glasses is while the sun is in totality, and they know when to put them back on before it pops back out again. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Daniel Carruth. In the sky, stormy weather. You're listening to Ozarks at Large. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art in Bentonville invites guests to discover American art, architecture, and 120 acres of Ozark nature. Visitors can also enjoy family-friendly activities and programs and a variety of food and drink experiences. More information at crystalbridges.org. There it is, the holy grail of Christmas gifts, the Red Ryder 200-shot range model air rifle. This is Ozarks at Large. It's a Monday. It's time for Randy Dixon to bring in some archives and history. He's with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. Say it with me, Kyle. You'll put your eye out. Or you'll shoot your eye out. I think it's the actual Ah. line. But, uh, yeah, that's from A Christmas Story. Which is a movie that is... Literally run 24 hours a day, I think, on Christmas Day on TNT or TBS. Since 1983 when it came out. It's a great movie. A great movie. And one of the, um, the, part of the spine of the movie is that our main protagonist wants to receive a Daisy BB gun for Christmas and his mother is worried that it's too dangerous. Yes, specifically a Red Rider. Specifically a Red Rider. With the compass in in the stock. And we'll talk about why it's called Red Rider. A little bit today. Right. Well, and the reason we're doing this, and, you know, they keep talking about Red Rider, Red Rider, Red Rider throughout the movie, but when you watch that scene when he's looking in the window mm-hmm. of the toy store, when the camera pans over and, and you see the gun, the, the sign actually says Daisy. Right. Red Rider. So it is a Daisy uh, air gun or BB gun, whatever you want to call it, but. They're made here in northwest Arkansas, Rogers, to yeah. be specific. Yeah. So we wanted to look into the story behind uh, the legend, yes. I guess. Yes. 
So uh, it dates back to 1882. The, the, the gun itself or the, or the company. The company. Right. Um, and it was actually based in Plymouth, uh, Michigan, which is a suburb of Detroit. And Makes sense because in the late 19th century, Detroit was hopping with manufacturing. Right. Automobiles about to come around. Yep. Yep. Uh, steel. Right. Metals. Um, but this company, the Plymouth Iron Windmill Company, made metal iron windmills. Oh. Uh, that's the name. <laughs> um, and one day, one of the employees came in, and he had been tinkering with this air rifle this that he was making well someone else had made it they had made it of wood i see and this guy says i can do better than that and and make it because we make metal Mm -hmm. and so he brought it to the president who was a guy named lewis huff and he uh showed it to him they loaded it up and took it out back and he shot it and um he loved it, and he made this exclamation ah. that, well, Joe Murphan, who uh, is with the Daisy Museum, explains here that it was a common expression at the time that gave it its name. Anyway, we've all had these little colloquialisms we use for superiority of things, but the saying in 1888, that's when this is, was, it's a Daisy. And it simply means it's a good one. It's a great one. And I've had people challenge that and say, do you mean it's a doozy? But it's a doozy came along when the Duesenberg car became popular. So that was way forward in the future. This is, it's a daisy. And there are recordings of it as early as 1880. So we know that's what they said. Now, as anything that's that old, there's at least two recordings of it all through the Huff family. They've said, boy, it's a daisy, or Clarence, it's a daisy. But the it's a daisy part stuck. So for people who said, the, did you name the gun after a flower? Was it the founder's wife's name, something like that? No, it was just the saying. So the first guns out there that were made actually are embossed on that top cocking lever, uh, Plymouth Iron Windmill Co., Plymouth Mish, because we used to use four letters for states, Patent applied for Daisy. And Daisy was just the name of the gun, not the name of the company. That's Joe Murphan from a conversation you had with him at the Daisy Museum that's in downtown Rogers. Right. All right, I want to tell you something. This is one of my favorite pieces you've ever brought in because I learned four things in about one minute from Joe Murphan. This guy's a wealth of information. First, I learned why Daisy guns are called Daisy. Yeah. Well, and if you remember the movie Tombstone. Mm-hmm. Uh, Val Kilmer, who played Doc Holliday, mm-hmm. there were several times in there he'll say... It's a daisy. Yep, or you'll be a daisy if yes. you do. Yeah. So that was the in 1880. All right. So second okay. thing I learned okay. here is that yeah. daisy is was this exclamation for something that's right. Third, I learned that doozy comes from the Duesenberg automobile. Never knew that. Never knew that. And fourth, that in the late 19th century, we used four letters to abbreviate states. Oh. Mish. Yeah. So thank you, Joe Murphan, for four items of information. Well, there's more coming. Okay. Because I talked to him some more. But anyway, we pick it up with, they start making these air rifles. Mm -hmm. And 
they would give them to their windmill salesmen as they would go out, and they were going to sell them for like $2 a piece. But then they also, it was sort of like a value added. If you buy a windmill, we give you a BB gun. Can I just stop you here and tell you how much I love thinking that somebody once had a job that was windmill salesman? That's, That's just a wonderful job to have. Okay, keep going. Yeah, well, they'd be in there, sure. you know, buckboard wagon. Right, and right. The problem was, you know, most windmills were made out of wood. Mm-hmm. These were made out of iron, and they were hard to transport. Heavy. Yes, and they were really hard to put together. It would take more than just a family to do it. You, you would have to have quite a few people to assemble this thing. A windmill raising, if you will. Yes, yes, but you'd have to have a lot more people <laughs> right. than a barn raising. Right. So in 1895, they changed the name of the company to Daisy because they just decided not windmills to make windmills. Windmills are out. Yep. yep, it's done. So they're doing that for quite some time, and then in 1958 is when they made the move to Rogers. Now, I found a 1969 interview in the KTV archives with Cass Huff, who was the grandson of that Lewis Huff okay. who said, it's a daisy. And um, he said, talks about in this interview how they decided to make the move from a suburb of Detroit to northwest Arkansas. People had gotten to a point where they no longer took pride in their jobs and no longer were eager to use an old cliche, give a day's work for a day's pay. And a small business like ours, we have to have that kind of thing. So I began looking all over the country. I was in every state in the union looking for a place to move this business of ours, which is a pretty old business. We'd been there at that time some 70 odd years and it wasn't easy to even think about moving a business. Uh, However, I knew we had to move. And after, as I say, going all over the country, Arkansas appealed to me for many reasons. It's uh, climate, it's natural resources, but more particularly, it's people. And I've said many times, there are a lot of states in the Union that have good climate, that have a lot of natural resources, but the greatest resource that any state has, and it's here in abundance in Arkansas, is it's people. I uh, can remember people saying to me, uh, what do the Arkansas people have that other people don't have? And this is an indefinable something, but it all sums up into a a kind of a pride in a job and a pride of belonging to an organization that they have in in great measure. I don't know what the population of Rogers was in 1958, but I'm going to guess 8, 9, 10, 12,000? Not Not even that much. Okay. I think it was more like five. Okay. All right. So here they are, daisies coming to Rogers. Well, um, Joe told me that they immediately brought 100 families up, Mm. which just was a shot in the arm for the economy of this small town. I imagine. Yeah. So they've got that going for them, and they improved the the airport, the runway, uh, because uh, Cass is a a World War II hero, Mm -hmm. veteran pilot, and um, he he does a lot of flying around the country to do his sales calls, and that is— how he found Rogers, oh landed gosh. there, and just fell in love with the area. But let's talk about the Red Rider okay. and how that came about. So I went to the Daisy Museum, and Joe Murphy was really nice, showed me around. 
And he told me about how the Red Rider came about. Now, at the time that this that this happened, they would find a kid that was outstanding or um, was athletic or well-known, and they would name a rifle after him. Mm-hmm. And this advertising guy comes in and says, now... What happens if this kid grows up and does something horrible? It's forward gonna, thinking. That's forward it, thinking. Yes, it's going to reflect badly on the company. So he came up with this idea. I own the rights to this character, Red Rider, and this comic strip, Red Rider, and we're all in these syndicated newspapers, and we have you know, um, comic books coming out, and Fred Harmon is the artist. And he's a well-known Western artist, oil painter, beautiful work. But he also draws these comics. And he used to work, uh, he and Disney were uh, working at the same studio together at one time. He's very talented, you know. So he said, why don't you make a Red Rider pistol? This would be 1938, and Daisy didn't make a pistol until 1960, so they didn't have one. But one of the men working in the plant, one of the executives was a guy named Bob Wesley. Bob goes in the back room, brings out a little carbine rifle, BB gun, and he had taken something and written Red Rider on it, kind of like a Red Rider logo, and he goes, how about something like this? Well, within two years, they were making Red Rider BB guns. All right, so Red Rider was, at the time in the comics, Yes. Maybe not the most popular. He wasn't as popular as Dick Tracy or or some of these others, but he was a pretty. He was very well known. Yes, and uh, done by an artist who was a well known, mm-hmm. not cartoonist, mm-hmm. Western artist. Yeah, and I will if I have because I'm me and I sometimes have insomnia. I've gone back and found online many Red Rider. Strips from the 30s, 40s, or 50s. I've never seen one. They're I need beautiful. to look that They're up. They're beautiful. And wow. so if you if you ever have time, well, it, I'm going to do it right after this show. It will sh- remind you that at a, there was a time when comic strips were big, yes, and in color, especially on Sunday, of course, mm-hmm. and and they just held a different place in our popular entertainment world than they do now, and they were gorgeous. Buck oh, Rogers was Gordon, Flash Gordon. Uh, but, yeah, yeah, I mean, it was yeah. it was art in itself. I have read, and, anticip- and in anticipation of this interview, I wanted to confirm this, and I couldn't, but I had read at one point that the Red Rider um, licensing agreement with Daisy BB Guns is the longest continuous fictional character endorsement of a product in U.S. history. Wow. That I didn't know. And the second longest is Popeye. With spinach, uh, with what is now owned by Alan Canning, Popeye mm-hmm. Spinach, also based in Arkansas. Yes. What, Alma? Yeah. Yeah. That's I am great. doing a jo- good job of taking us off topic today. I apologize. No, it's fascinating. Uh, I love it's something. when we go off topic. Yes. Okay. <laughs> All right. So All we've, right. T- we've learned about Red Rider. Right. And so I was looking more and more in the archives, and I did come across a feature report from 1984, uh, when Chris Phillips uh, made the trip, and you know, coming f- from Little Rock to do it to do mm-hmm. a story is um, yeah, it's a pretty good haul. Mm-hmm. And so she came up and went into the factory and 
Uh, this is a portion of that report. The family who started this rifle empire more than 100 years ago recently acquired the company back. The now 79-year-old Cass Huff purchased the plant for an undisclosed figure. Years ago, it was windmills and not rifles the family wanted to sell. They just gave away the air guns with windmill purchases. But they ended up building an empire on the shooting recreation. As far as the future is concerned, company executives say some more non-gun products may be manufactured here. But for right now, they're just happy Daisy is back in the hands of the family who started the gun business long ago. Chris Phillips, New Scene 7, Rogers. All right, so that's from the factory. You spent time in the museum yes. recently. Yeah, and I still want to go to the factory. I'd mm -hmm. love to see that. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they make the, the BBs out of these... I think they're 2,000-pound coils of, of wire that they slice up and make into BBs. Oh, my gosh. I've got to see this happen. Yeah. I, I saw the video. I want to see it yeah. first. Maybe we could make a trip up there. I bet we could. We'll beg Joe to there see if he'll let us All in. Right. So walking through the museum, I noticed other items that Daisy produced over the years, and Joe explained a, a few of them. Certainly uh, toy guns dating back to, uh, I want to say about 1908, maybe even a little earlier than that. They were making, uh, they called them liquid helium pistols. They were water guns is what they were, but they made cork guns and noisemakers and paper poppers and pop guns. And uh, uh, there was a uh, Buck Rogers in the 25th century gun that looks like a spaceman's ray guns. And, you know, toy guns used to be fun and we all grew up with them, people our age. I want to see this science fiction gun. Yeah. I want to see this. Well, what I was surprised about is I looked up and I'm seeing all these different guns and then I see a water pistol. Mm-hmm. And so they made everything, you know, like he said, the noisemakers right. and, and that sort of thing. But my next, to me, natural question was, did they ever consider making firearms? And the answer is yes. Then in um, the late 80s, they developed a line of 22 guns called the Legacy. And they're absolutely beautiful guns. They all had octagon barrels. Some of them were wood. Some of them had synthetic stocks on them, but the wood was walnut. They were beautiful guns. And the idea of being your first gun was, being a, was having a very inexpensive gun, right? That's your first one. You're not going to spend a lot of money. Instead, by the time they got these guns developed, they had a gun that competed more with a Winchester or a Remington than it did with a Savage or a Stevens, which is where they should have been. They built a Cadillac gun, and they should have been buying a building an entry-level Chevrolet. So uh, the bad news for Daisy was the guns didn't sell that bad because uh, sell that well because they were a higher-priced gun with a Daisy name on it. Yeah. The good news for collectors today is the guns didn't sell that well. So there aren't that many of them out there, and they're considered very collectible, and they are a good little twenty-two. So valuable to have one of those 22s, like he said, collectors. Yeah. Good news for collectors. Yeah. Good news for collectors. And um, this is what really surprised me, is that they manufactured a lot more sophisticated weapon. So in 1987, Daisy made a 50 caliber uh, sniper rifle for Navy SEALs and for NATO forces. Wow. 
and there's one on display in the museum. I'm going to show an ignorance of firearm knowledge. Mm-hmm. 50 caliber. What it's pretty is, big. Okay. Yeah, it's big. It's a big okay. shell. And, um, you know, there's there, there are interesting parts to this museum. There's also that I, I see a monitor with uh, Moonwalk. Mm-hmm. And a whole section with all these pictures, and I see a golf ball. Well, um, Alan Shepard, I believe it was Apollo 14, you know, s- snuck a golf. A, I think it was a, an iron. Right. Uh, and I, I'm, they knew about it, but uh, he went out and hit a couple of golf balls. Yeah. And one, he hit it like 1,700 feet or something. <laughs> right. But one of them was a Daisy promotional golf ball, and it is up on the moon right now. <laughs> now, you say Daisy promotional. They didn't make the golf ball. No. They just, just, it would be something they would hand out as a, yeah, like a. Yeah, like KTV used to have, you know, Paul Eels golf balls. Right, right. But there's a picture, but this says Daisy on it. So the Daisy logo is on the moon. Yes. That is awesome. Yeah, and Joe actually, as a joke one year, put $4 million in the budget so he could go and retrieve it. <laughs> he needs to call up Bezos or one of these billionaires. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you ought to go by the museum and get the full story on the golf ball on the moon. Yeah. But all, all the stuff in there is is really cool looking. I even bought a uh, Red Rider myself. Yeah, you did. And a starter kit. I was showing it off in the in the office yesterday. Well, and you you before we did our in person thing at the Prior Center yes. Thursday night, you showed me that you had it. And by the yeah. way, thanks to everybody for coming out and watching online our first ever in person version. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. We want to do it again. I think we may do it once or twice a year, and maybe even. Yeah. Take it on the road. We don't know. Someone suggested that last night. And yeah. We're interested. Maybe we could. I loved the video of Jimmy Driftwood you showed last night. Where oh, he's, yeah. Where he's playing in his field in Timbo. And then gives a little history yeah. lesson about where the land came from. And if you missed it, it, you can go to the Prior Center and watch the archive version, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Just go to the KETV section. There's a search. Just put in Driftwood, and there'll be several clips yeah. that come up. It'll have the description. You click on the description, and it takes you right to the clip. All right, we're going to do this again next week, right? Yes, I have no idea what we're going to do. All right, but you'll be here. It's been a busy week. Yes, it has. I'm just, I'm at a loss, but the show goes on. Yes, it does. So, got to come up with something. (laughs) Thank you, Randy (laughs) Dixon with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas. Could could we close with a little nostalgia? Yeah. Let's do an an old... uh, Daisy commercial. All right, we'll do that. I, I will tell people that they can find out about all sorts of Arkansas history by looking for the Prior Center website in their search engine. Here we go. And I'll see you next week. It doesn't seem that long ago Mom would send me out of the house and I wasn't expected home till dinner. The boys and I would grab our Red Riders and make an adventure of each day, just hoping the sun would never go down. My love for hunting and the outdoors became tradition all those years ago. Something that great is easy to share and pass down because it never gets old. Some things have changed, but shooting that Daisy Red Rider, especially with grandkids, is more fun than ever. Go have an adventure. It all starts with a daisy. You're listening to a special archive edition of Ozarks at Large on KUAF 91.3 FM. 
Tune in to your NPR station live at any time when you download the NPR One app. Just make KUAF your home station and you can get live broadcasts, individual segments from your favorite programs like Morning Edition or even Ozarks at Large, plus podcasts and more. That's NPR One available on your smartphone or tablet today. The Momentary in Benville presents Grammy Award-winning country band Brothers Osborne, Saturday, July 15th, live outdoors on the Momentary Green. This concert is part of the Momentary's Live on the Green concert series. Brothers Osborne tickets on sale now at themomentary.org. Grab your coat and get your hat. Leave your worries on the doorstep. Just direct your feet to the sunny side of the street. Can you hear a pitter-pat? And that happy too is your step. Life can be so sweet on the sunny side of the street. I used to walk in the shade with those blues on parade. But I'm not afraid. This rover crossed over. If I never had a cent, I'd be rich as Rockefeller. Gold dust at my feet on the sunny side of the street. Get your hat, leave your worries on the doorstep. Just direct your feet to the sunny side of the street. This is Leah Uribe, Associate Professor at the University of Arkansas Music Department, expanding our musical boundaries with Sound Perimeter. We opened Sound Perimeter today with American pop and jazz singer and trombone soloist Aubrey Logan. Aubrey Logan, originally from Bellevue, Washington, graduated from the Berklee School of Music in 2010. She's a singer, a trombone player, a songwriter, and the winner of multiple awards at the Montreux Jazz Festival. Logan has collaborated with the Alabama Shakes, Megan Trainor, Pharrell Williams, Josh Groban, and Gloria Stephan, among many others, and appeared on Jimmy Kimmel's and the Grammys Award Show. On the Sunny Side of the Street is a song composed in 1930 by Jimmy McHugh with lyrics by Dorothy Fields. In this song, Logan shines optimism and flexibility. This song is featured in her latest album, Standard.
never had a cent. I'd be rich as Rockefeller. Gold dust at my feet on the sunny. Side of the street. That was trombonist, singer, and songwriter Aubrey Logan and the 1930s song On the Sunny Side of the Street. Logan will be visiting the University of Arkansas this weekend, performing a concert at the Faulkner Performing Arts Center on February 24th at 7.30 p.m. and appearing as a guest artist for the Department of Music Trombone Day on February 25th an event that is geared for anyone who loves the trombone, but primarily high school students, college students, and adults who wish to learn more about the instrument. See the link in the show notes for tickets and more information. Before we go, let us listen to Aubrey Logan again in a rendition of George Gershwin's song from 1924, Fascinating Rhythm, featuring her energetic trombone performance and scat singing, a technique in which the singer improvises melodies and rhythms using the voice as an instrument. Got a little rhythm, a rhythm, a rhythm That pitter pats in my brain It's so darn persistent The day isn't distant That it'll drive me insane in the morning without any warning and hangs around me all day i'll have to sneak up to it one day and speak up to it i hope it listens when i say a fascinating rhythm you got me on the go fascinating rhythm i'm all a quiver what a mess you're making the neighbors wanna know why i'm always shaking just like a flither each morning I get up with the sun Start a hop and never stop It's a fine at night No work has been done I know that once it didn't matter And now you're doing wrong When you start to patter I'm so unhappy Won't you take the day off Decide to run along Somewhere far away off And make it snappy
Aubrey Logan, Not to Miss, performing at 7.30 p.m. on Friday, February 24th at the Faulkner Performing Arts Center at the University of Arkansas, and joining my colleague, Dr. Corey Mixturf, for Trombone Day on February 25th. Check out our notes for more information. I truly hope to see you there. This is Leah Uribe, Associate Professor at the University of Arkansas Music Department, expanding our musical boundaries with Sound Pinimeter, a show written and hosted by me and produced by Timothy Dennis, KUAF 91.3 in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Sound Pinimeter is a segment dedicated to diverse voices in and around music. I hope it will expand your knowledge and connection to inclusive sounds and let music infiltrate your lives and transform your realities. See you soon. This is Ozarks at Large. You can discover full archives of Sound Perimeter in podcast form when you visit us online at KUAF.com and keep up to date with the latest segments from Leah Aribe and other highlights from the show delivered right to your email inbox. That's with the Ozarks at Large newsletter. Go to KUAF.com newsletter to subscribe for free. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook with Songs. From the bottom, take one. From the bottom. No one really knows when Sonny Boy Williamson was born or even his real name. Alec Rice Miller and Willie Williams are other names he used. 
This Sonny Boy Williamson is known as Sonny Boy Williamson II among blues fans, and not to be confused with another harmonica-playing blues man, John Lee Sonny Boy Williamson I, who first recorded on the Bluebird label in 1937. But Sonny Boy II, who was probably born in the late 1800s, always claimed to be the original Sonny Boy. He also claimed to have recorded early in his career, but research has never revealed such. Most likely, despite his age, Rice Miller only recorded for less than 14 influential years, first in 1951 for Lillian Murray, owner of Jackson, Mississippi's trumpet label, and then for the more prominent chess label in Chicago, Illinois. The cut heard here and the next are both from 1954, the year before Sonny Boy's contract was traded to a Memphis pressing plant in exchange for a $6,000 debt as the trumpet label went out of business. Mm, been so long. Been a mighty, mighty long time. Rice Miller, or Sonny Boy, might have been born around Tutwiler, Mississippi. Even less is known about his early life, but as a young man, he played the harmonica, an instrument which had become popular in America during the Civil War. By the early 1930s, Miller was playing with Robert Johnson and Phillips County native Robert Nighthawk. These men and others were establishing a reputation around Arkansas, Mississippi, Tennessee, and beyond. Their music would become known as the Delta Blues, and it continues to influence popular music and is listened to worldwide. Sonny Boy II, or Rice Miller, especially helped spread the blues. Tall and imposing and rough and tumble, he could play the harmonica stuck in his mouth like a chrome cigar, or held up by his top lip and through his nose. He liked drinking whiskey and was quick to pull a knife, they said. Despite his gruff reputation, longtime King Biscuit Time host, Sunshine Sonny Payne, said Sonny Boy was a kind person. It all depended on how you treated him. The influential 15-minute King Biscuit Time broadcasts on Helena, Arkansas, KFFA radio became a favorite of white and black households alike. First heard in 1941, King Biscuit Time became one of the longest-running programs in American broadcasting. Radio helped make Sonny Boy a star years before he ever recorded. Sonny Boy Williamson, too, also later had a show on KWEM in West Memphis, Arkansas, pushing Hadakal cough syrup but he returned sporadically over the years to King Biscuit time and to Helena. Other King Biscuit boys have gone from Helena to international blues fame, like Robert Jr. Lockwood, Pine Top Perkins, Johnny Shines, Peck Curtis, and others. You know you gotta treat me better If you don't, it's got to be your funeral in my tribe From August 1955 to 1964, Alec Rice Miller cut almost 70 sides as Sonny Boy Williamson for chess records with sidemen like Lockwood, Willie Dixon, Otis Spann, and Buddy Guy. The best of even the song titles read like poetry, Fattening Frogs for Snakes, Eyesight to the Blind, Don't Start Me to Talking, Nine Below Zero, or Your Funeral and My Trial, heard here. In addition to being an incredible performer and musician, Rice Miller was also a gifted writer. Although the songs were cut in a time when both he and the blues were past their primes, they became staples of blues rock almost from their release date. Sonny Boy Williamson II's tours of Europe in the early 1960s were a sensation. British invasion groups like The Animals and Eric Clapton and The Yardbirds performed and recorded with him, and countless rock artists have recorded Sonny Boy Williamson songs. Although after touring Europe, Rice Miller took to wearing bowler hats and had talked about immigrating to England, he came back to Helena, Arkansas by the mid-1960s. Famously, he told everyone he had come home to die. 
On May 25, 1965, he did just that in his rented room above the Dreamland Cafe. For years, there was talk of turning the building in which Sonny Boy died into a museum, but the funds were never raised and the building eventually collapsed. But Sonny Boy Williamson seems to be among the best remembered of Helena's many blues artists. On October 18, 1986, the King Biscuit Blues Festival was launched in Helena. Although dozens and dozens of bluesmen lived and worked in Helena, the festival's logo was taken from an old grain sack, with Sonny Boy Williamson II sitting atop a giant corn cob, King Biscuit Flower. The local blues society is also named for Sonny Boy, and other organizations like the Delta Cultural Center work to document and celebrate the area's incredible musical legacy. The glory and identity Alec Rice Miller, also known as Sonny Boy Williamson II, always sought during his life, was finally his during his death. Recorded live from King Biscuit Time on Helena's KFFA Radio the month he died, here's Alec Rice Miller, or Sonny Boy Williamson II, with Joe Willie Wilkins and Peck Curtis of Helena, Arkansas, with Right Now. At 11.45, phone began to ring. I heard my baby say, don't even call my name right now. Sonny Boy Williamson II, or Alec Rice Miller, from a King Biscuit Time broadcast on KFFA Radio in Helena, Arkansas, live on the air from May 1965, recorded the month Sonny Boy Williamson died. It's another song of Arkansas. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook, with Arkansongs. Arkansongs is a production of Experiment Station Studios. Producer is Keith Merks. Arkansas since 1998. You've been listening to a special archive episode of Ozarks at Large on KUAF 91.3 in Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Springdale, and Siloam Springs. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the University of Arkansas. I'm Daniel Carruth. I'm Anna Pope. And Anna, we're pretty much the only people left in the office this week. You know, everybody else is on vacation. They're taking off. And I was reading today that... Uh, XNA has had a uptick in complaints from passengers recently. Uh, one good thing about not traveling, about being <laughs> stuck in the office, is we don't have to deal with traveling. We don't have to deal with traffic. I don't have to deal with wait lines at TSA. Yeah. So I was wondering, what is your uh, your worst travel story? 
You know, anytime I've been on a plane, it's been good. Uh, so I can't really think about horrible experiences when it comes to, but I think uh, as far as a good experience of what oh. I've had on a plane is uh, it was when my little sister was young. It was the whole family, but my little sister and I, we ended up sitting alone. And my younger sister was able to talk by like in full sentence by the time she was two. And so she's a very, like, sociable kid <laughs> and wow. always has been. And so we were sitting next to this person who I'm sure was just wanting to have a quiet ride. We were sitting next to this person. His name was Ernie. Ooh. And by the time we got off of that plane, we knew how his, his daughter, who just got married, we saw pictures. We, we, you know, we, we knew everything about him, why he was leaving his place, why he was going someplace, how many kids does he have, his job, all, all of these things. My little sister was just like... She's adorable now, but she was adorable, especially then. And so he was just down to talk. And he was like, yeah, let us know if you're in Puerto Rico. We, that's where we were going. Let us know. We can meet for dinner and all this. So we made a friend, friend Ernie, on the point. We never met up with him. But I've never had like a horrible, oh, whoa. Uh, it wasn't anything that could be avoidable. But the I think we were trying to avoid turbulence. And mm. so the plane was up and down and side to side. And I've never been car sick before. But if there was, if there was going to be a time if I felt sick was on that plane that's my worst travel that, experience what about you i was next to someone who got sick oh. for like 12 hours oh daniel from like denver to munich i think okay. maybe not 12 it was probably like nine hours but still yeah they got sick from the from the jump so well that's exciting i don't have to worry about this this week that's no. that's what our coworkers they can worry yeah, about that exactly traveling for losers traveling. that's right <laughs> Well, today's show was produced inside the Karen Taha News Studio. Contributors included Kyle Kellums, Randy Dixon, and Leah Aribe. We're back tomorrow with another archive episode of Ozarks at Large. Until then, thanks for listening and have a happy Memorial Day.